0: Hi everyone! I know what you're thinking, I don't know this voice, where are Stephanie and Janet? Was there a coup at the symmetrical haircuts? To answer your questions, my name is Ilaria, I have been working at the podcast for a few months now, Stephanie and Janet are totally fine and there's been no hostile takeover. Yet. As you might know, we are currently on summer break and we will be back in September with brand new episodes. But! to keep you company this summer, I was given a very important mission. So what I did was dive deep into our archive, I listened
1: to every single minute that was ever recorded, and I picked four of our old episodes to repropose
0: during the month of August. So sit back, enjoy the throwbacks, and stay ready for September. And, you know, we talked to a lot of the more traditional states about considering this as... um, as a, the, the traditional states as you would think of them, and you know none of them had the courage and the ability to do what Gambia did and step up and, and take it. Justice plays an important role.: I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments.: Such
2: abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished.
0: Proceedings will be long and complex.
2: All right. Wow, what a day. We're recording on what uh, everybody in The Hague is talking about as being a really historic day. Gambia submitted an application to the International Court of Justice saying that Myanmar
1: has been violating the Genocide Convention, all to do with the Rohingya. Yeah, more than a million Rohingya were transferred to neighboring Bangladesh in 2017 and transferred is a very nice way to say it. Forcibly displaced would probably be something other people would say. Gambia says that they want Myanmar to stop the treating the Rohingya this way. And besides the claim, um, the big case, they've also filed for provisional measures to ask the court to ask Myanmar to stop immediately uh, treating the Rohingya this way.
2: And everybody's saying it's rather historic because Gambia is in Africa and Myanmar's in Asia. There's no direct border, no direct conflict. Uh, So that's a first at the World Court, the ICJ, under this genocide convention. At the press conference we just attended, we heard Abu Bakr Tambadu, the Gambian Minister of Justice, explaining why they got themselves involved.
0: And the Gambia which is bringing this case On behalf of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation wants to send a clear message to Myanmar and to the rest of the international community that um, the world must not stand by and do nothing um, in the face of terrible atrocities that are occurring around us. It is a shame for our generation that um, we do nothing while genocide is unfolding um, right before our own eyes.
1: And the representatives of the Rohingya people feel that this action in itself will make a big difference to them. So let's hear from Yasmin Ula, who is a Canadian-based Rohingya activist.
2: This is monumental. It is, for us at least, um, to the Rohingya community, who have endured so much, from my grandparents' generation to my parents' and now mine, several decades have passed, and justice, or even the appearance of it, seemed a little bit far-fetched for many of us. As Rohingya, we've internalized the you know, what it means to be lesser than, what it means to never be enough, and to continuously be subjected to cruelty. It shouldn't be normal, but it is. It's, it shouldn't be so easy for us to be dismissed as humans, to, be, to dismiss ourselves, but the perpetrators have ingrained in us You know, the the very idea that we're not worthy of living. We're not worthy of being respected as humans. And it worked. We also managed to grab hold of someone who can explain more about this, uh, and especially why the issue of sexual violence and rape is central to this case at the ICJ. We've grabbed Akhila Radhakrishnan, the president of the Global Justice Center based in New York, that's an international human rights organization focused on gender equality and the rule of law. Hi Akila. thanks for coming.
0: Hi, thank you so much for having me. So can you explain a bit what is your connection to this case Akila? Sure. So the Global Justice Center has actually been working on issues in Myanmar since 2005. And we've long worked, um, in particular, with ethnic communities to address accountability for military-perpetrated sexual violence. So not just the Rohingya, but the broad range of um, ethnic communities that that exist in Myanmar. Um, Sexual violence has long been used as a tactic of war and conflict by the military. And so... GJC has been involved in working with our partners on this issue for over a decade, Um, and you know, in particular, I think we saw that through the democratic transition. um, And I put "democratic" in quotes here, but you know, it was it was a moment where I think everyone felt that everything in Myanmar was opening up, things were really changing. But we saw through the lens of our ethnic partners that, in fact, nothing was nothing was changing. Um, and in fact, that the conflict that existed prior to the transition has continued, continual uh, has been continuous um, and unabated in its characterization of human rights violations. And so, for the Global Justice Center, we've long been advocating for a multifaceted approach to accountability as well. So, the international community, I think, has been very focused on individual criminal responsibility. Um, and in particular, starting with the events in um, October 2017, in August, sorry, and in particular, starting with the events in August 2017 against the Rohingya, a real look at how is it that you can hold the military perpetrators to account. But GJC has long been pushing for state accountability. Oh, hence the ICJ, hence which the is the ICJ state, state. Exactly, as as a way of saying that. You know, there are so many barriers to individual criminal accountability, and there's a real need to force the state of Myanmar to change its behavior and do something about this. And so that's really been our involvement, is in looking at the broad range of measures we've been pushing for, all avenues that can possibly be taken. um, And the ICJ, with the context of what happened to the Rohingya, is, is one that became apparent.
1: And how much are NGOs involved in this? Because the ICJ is, is typically a forum for uh, states against states. So where where do you kind of fit in as, as an NGO uh, with this claim that, that is led by the Gambia?
2: Because there were a lot, lot of NGOs there today who are all
0: talking about it. Yeah. So I, I think the NGO community is one that exists in a really important space in the international community, which is to advocate for and provide support for certain types of actions, especially actions that take a particular amount of courage. So the ICJ is an interstate dispute. The Gambia has a particular dispute with Myanmar when it comes to its, you know, how it has violated its obligations under the Genocide Convention. But I think that in the same way that NGOs play a role in advocating for the Security Council to take a particular action or for the creation of mechanisms like the Independent International Mechanism for Myanmar or the Fact-Finding Mission for Myanmar, NGOs have a very similar role to play. Um, And I think there's also an educative component to what NGOs can do as a part of this process and working both with the affected communities and with stakeholders at large about what can be done with this type of move and measure?
1: when I was speaking yesterday to somebody uh, in, in an NGO who was working on this you kind of explained that when they were when you were floating this idea of bringing a case to the ICJ, the kind of um, response from states, um, at the UN was kind of to pat the NGOs on the head and say that's such a cute little idea you have. Oh how nice, how quaint that you're going to try this, but it'll never work. Did you see that same kind of reaction when this ICJ idea came about? And what does it say now that that you've actually or that, that this has happened?
0: I mean, I think that's definitely a part of the response of states. Is they're so used to kind of having a collective response and the ability to be able to have control over what's done. Right. This is singular in that it only takes one state to take the courage to say, we're going to do this. Um, And I think that when it comes to Myanmar in particular, we've seen almost no political or moral courage. Um, You know, you've seen bits and pockets over their actions out of the Human Rights Council. But really, at the end of the day, ever since the, the transition, since 2011, you've seen almost no appetite for the community to take any meaningful action. And some of that has to do with Economic interests. Some of that has to do with how the international community works, um, and so I think you're right. I think that attitude was definitely one that was prevalent, especially because a move like this is is big and bold, as as Janet mentioned. It's it's historic, um, and you know, we talked to a lot of the more traditional states about considering this as um, as a the, the traditional states as you would think of them, and you know, none of them had the courage and the ability to do what Gambia did and step up and, and take it. Do you think there might be a bit of a pile on now? I
2: mean, there's a call for Canada to step up, a call for the Netherlands. Here we
0: are where the ICJ is based. And, you know, Are we going to see states joining in? I think it would be really important for other states to step up and and show that they're willing to support the case, engage with the case either through their own applications or by intervening under Article 63 and really you know, working with particular facets of the law that interest them. Um, I'm hopeful that some of those um, countries, especially the Netherlands and Canada, where their parliaments have already passed resolutions or taken measures to urge their governments to take this type of action, um, I think it would really show um, a good sense of support from the community for what the Gambia is doing and also help strengthen the case. I'm still skeptical to see if that will actually happen.
2: Do you really have an insight into why the Gambia uh, stepped up itself?
0: Well, I think the um, the minister in kind of various meetings himself has said why the Gambia stepped up. So I think I would just defer to what the minister said. But he's really talked about how, you know, this was a part of his experience in being a prosecutor at the Tribunal for Rwanda. And as a part of, you know, being a, the OIC set up a ad hoc committee on accountability. And he was a part of that committee. And he went to Cox's Bazaar and he saw the experience, recognized genocide, understood that as a state, there were legal opportunities that were available to the Gambia to step up and do this. And I think there's also um, a connection between what um, the Gambia is currently trying to do domestically with its own Truth and Reconciliation Reparations Commission in process, um, where they're trying to set a standard for taking human rights violations seriously ensuring injustice and accountability domestically, um, and also taking that leadership to the international level.
2: Your organization has been particularly concerned about um, the levels of sexual violence that have gone on in Myanmar. Um, You've done a couple of different reports, one, uh, the Rohingya from discrimination to destruction, about what's generally happened, and a second one, very specifically, called Beyond Killing, that really focuses on the nexus between gender and genocide authored by the amazing Sarita Ashraf. Yeah, we should always give her a, uh, a shout out. So can you explain to us how you see this, uh, the necessity for sexual violence to be such a main focus for this
0: application? I, I would be happy to. Um, so as I said, we've long worked with ethnic groups and that the militaries use sexual violence as a tactic of conflict in Myanmar. Um, and in this context, it was perhaps even more marked in the ways in which they utilize sexual violence. There was a clear gender ideology in how the acts that were committed against the Rohingya were carried out. So the, you know, the kind of the fast killing of men, the mass sexual violence of women. Um, you know, one of the reports by the Fact-Finding Mission found that Many women were gang gang raped, including by as many as eight perpetrators, um, and that the FFM found that 80 percent of those that they documented were, in fact, gang rapes. Um, And so there was a ferocity, a brutality to the way that these acts were carried out um, that you really could see. And, you know, women were raped in the context they were separated from the men. The men were taken to be killed. The women were raped oftentimes after they were raped. They were either killed in brutal ways they were put inside homes and burned alive their stomachs were slashed in the context with very large knives and so there was a real pervasiveness and ubiquity to the sexual violence that was experienced and i think that you know the extensive documentation that has been done not only by the fact-finding mission but by ngos has really shown that this is an experience that impacted not only women but also men yeah, because also the lawyer specifically said that they put this in the filing. Mm-hmm. They talk about mass gang rapes, and
1: if you kind of take a minute to sink sink in what mass gang rapes would mean, so it's multiple men raping multiple m- women at the same time, and that w- this was often done in very public places mm-hmm. so that everybody would see. This is a very very particular kind of thing, but so they mentioned this specifically I- in the files. Um, can we look? Um, a bit at how gender matters in this uh, idea of genocide and how um
2: yeah that's what I wanted to pick up as well is how is it that we connect I mean we have this idea of genocide being basically killing Mm -hmm. um and then we have this idea of sexual violence being a thing that can happen so where did where do the two really
0: connect well, so you'll note our report is entitled Beyond Killing um, because we really wanted to highlight that killing is just, it's one of the five officially named acts of genocide, right? So as a starting point in the genocide convention, you have five types of acts that actually constitute genocide, killing being the first, and perhaps the one that's most easily understood or prevalent. And then you have four other acts. Um, and I think that in the context of genocide, there's two things. one. Thankfully, to the case law that's come out of Akiyesu, which was a seminal case at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which recognized that sexual violence was a component of genocide, in particular Act B, of causing serious bodily or mental harm. Um, And that case law has helped push forward an understanding that sexual violence can, in fact, be a part of a genocidal campaign. Um, But we've actually never really seen the prosecution of many of the other acts of genocide. And gender pervades not only sexual violence, but the way in which um, those who experience genocide can experience all of the constitutive acts. Um, You know, the manner in which, for example, let's take a look at the Rohingya, the manner in which killing occurred. So women were killed in very particular ways that almost conceptualized a gender role so Women were, um, you know, they were burned alive or butchered with knives used for slaughtering animals, methods of killing that mirror the destruction of objects and property. So a real demonstration of how the Tatmadaw on the security forces were, and their tactics, were informed by misogyny and gendered conceptions of power. Um, and you know, in the same way in which you could also look at what does it mean to kill the men in a community, um, we came to this this broader work on gender and genocide, not only looking at the Rohingya, but, for example, also looking at the experience of the Yazidi genocide. Um, and what did it mean to kill one side, you know, where the men were particularly killed in a community where you need both parents to be Yazidi in order for the Yazidis to continue. So it wasn't just the experiences of the women who were, um, you know, who experienced sexual violence and said, I no longer want to procreate. Um, that potentially could have an impact on the reproductive capacity of the community, but it also could have to do with the fact that many of the men no longer exist and they don't have the ability to, to procreate. And so really to broaden out how we look at um, the context of gender. And then the one other thing I would highlight that I think was really important, um, the Fact-Finding Mission for Myanmar released a report on in October looking specifically at uh, SGBV. Um, uh, in
1: sexual the gender-based
0: sex- violence with the uh, acronyms um, "lovers us. Yes. Um. Thank you for. I, I tend to talk in acronyms a lot. I think we all do. Um. But they actually documented. Um. You know the, the disproportionate amount of sexual violence that was utilized against women, but they also documented sexual violence against men for example, in um, detention facilities, and they also documented sexual violence against transgender individuals and transgender Rohingya, which was quite a revolutionary thing to have been done. And so to really also keep our context for understanding that oftentimes what drives the masculinities, the misogyny that drive the use use of sexual violence um, means that it's not just necessarily used against women.
2: In this case, because um, we're not talking about individual criminal responsibility, but we're talking about a state um, uh, sticking to or not the Genocide Convention, do we also have to really understand individual intent? That was also something that uh, that's come up every time I've been talking about genocide with people, is that genocide isn't just what happens, it's also understanding the intent of the person behind it. How does that work with... With uh, this application,
0: well, I think um, in the context here, obviously, the specific intent is maybe one of the more difficult parts of a genocide case to prove. But you know, what you're going to be trying to do is map the specific intent against the acts. And what you have here is a very strong military structure. What you have is, mili- you know, sexual violence, the the patterns, the ubiquity, the the way in which it was even carried out. Um, really mirroring things that show that it was a common practice um, and mapping that to the intent to destroy the Rohingya more broadly is something that I think can, can fairly well be done. And one thing that's also interesting is that the FFM in its most recent report actually concluded that sexual violence itself was one of the indicia that they found of genocidal intent. So the occurrence, and the manner in which it happened is actually an indicia of intent. Um, They found that to be one of seven factors.
2: And there's this um, quick, slow thing going on as well. Um, They want um, provisional measures Mm -hmm. to be imposed very quickly. But I was also talking to people who were saying, yeah, it might take about six years altogether to to get this case through. So uh, how do you feel about the quick, slow nature of this?
0: I mean, I think that's been one of the kind of the debates that's been happening about, is this valuable as a process? Um, But I think that the provisional measures are so incredibly important, because in face of kind of complete inaction by bodies like the Security Council, to have legal orders that would call on Myanmar to stop committing acts or take certain types of actions to, we don't know, you know, we haven't yet seen the filing, so we don't know what provisional measures have specifically been asked for. But I think that to have something that, that can be utilized by the international community to say, you have been found to be in violation of these things, and they're asking you to do X, Y, Z, it gives a really good roadmap as well. You know, the Security Council has the opportunity to then utilize that in considering what types of actions it may itself take. Um, and I think that that, in and of itself, is something that is really valuable. And I think someone earlier today called it a game changer. Um and I think that's right, especially because the you know the Myanmar's government has just rejected the findings of the fact finding mission. Here is a process, a treaty, a court to which they are bound, um, that they themselves have consented to. And so I think there is power in getting something relatively quickly out of that court as well.
1: So at the end of the interview we always ask our three asymmetrical haircuts questions. Um Without preparation, preparation, so don't worry about it. And so our first question is always, what does everybody always get wrong about your job or your field?
0: Um, I think they always assume that we're a documentation organization. Um, And we're not. We actually do uh, legal analysis and legal advocacy. So we kind of set ourselves alongside other organizations and we take a radical feminist approach to legal analysis. And have
2: you been reading or seeing, watching anything recently that you'd like to recommend?
0: Um, I'm currently reading a book on this trip called The Power by Naomi Alderman. And it is a book about um, the, I don't, I don't know where it ends yet, I'm about midway through, but it's about the awakening of, um, of powers of electricity in young women around the world and how it causes upheaval around the world.
1: It's great. I, ha- I read it as well. on because it was a recommendation from somebody at the bookstore and it's, it's really uh, quite feminist but quite like fun
0: yeah exactly think. something in the middle of not being depressing and about genocide
1: <laughs> <laughs> and our final question is uh, what didn't we ask you that we should have did we leave anything out
0: okay, I don't think so I think you guys did a really thoughtful interview so okay. thank you
1: This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Show notes and additional blogs are available on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com. And the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.